0: Ivan Sean Ginyard, Sean to those who loved him most, was a 34-year-old from Thompson, Manitoba. He was a friendly guy who would give someone the shirt off his back. On the morning of November 28, 2015, Sean made a call to his father in Ontario, asking for money. After that call, he was never seen again. I'm Ed Densel, and this is Unfound. ever been to a place that was dangerous. And no, I don't mean that precious space between Kim Kardashian and her Instagram account. What I mean is, for you younger military veterans out there, maybe you think of your service in Iraq or Afghanistan. For you older vets, the first Gulf War, Bosnia, or Vietnam come to mind. For you much older military veterans, Korea, Europe, the South Pacific. But for all of us non-veterans, We probably have to think about the topic a little harder. Is there really a town, a neighborhood, where you thought an act of violence could be perpetrated on you at any moment? Yes, cities have their issues, but those pockets of violence can be avoided if needed. Even Chicago, with its murder statistics, 99% of the city is harmless. Well, today on this episode, Unfound is bringing a missing persons case to you from one of the safest countries in the world canada a first for this program yet we are going to a town the winnipeg free press calls the crime capital of canada and reading the statistics it's no slouch there's seemingly no part of it where a person can let their guard down but it's not toronto or montreal or vancouver it's a city i'm sure you never heard of i'm sure you'd have problems finding it on a map in fact, I'd never heard of it before finding out about the disappearance of Sean Ginyard. In Canada, it has been ranked number one in crime nine out of the last ten years. It's Thompson, Manitoba, the most dangerous place. And now a summary of the case. Sean Gignard's life was going fairly smoothly in St. Catharines, Ontario. He was close with his sister and parents and planned to be a welder. However, in his early 20s, his behavior changed. Doctors diagnosed Sean with schizophrenia. He was put on medication, and that brought him back to being the old Sean. Yet throughout the next decade, at various times, Sean tried to wean himself off the medication to negative results, with him hearing voices and being overtly friendly. Most importantly, Sean's illness did not cause him to be violent. In fact, it was much the opposite. In the months before his disappearance, Sean had left his home in Ontario, ending up in Manitoba, hoping to use his welding experience to work in the gold mines. Yet at this point, he had been off his medication for several months and was struggling. In Thompson, Manitoba, he lived out of his truck and in a homeless shelter, but made money doing various jobs around the city. However, Sean also ran into trouble with locals and got beat up not long after getting there. On the evening of November 27, 2015, Sean was seen at the shelter playing cards with two women and a man. They seemed to be getting along. Yet the next morning, Sean made a frantic call to his father needing money. Due to the banks being closed, Sean's dad couldn't help him. That morning of November 28th, Sean was last seen behind the homeless shelter in Thompson. He was never seen again. What complicates finding a resolution to this case besides Sean's own mental health are the man who ended up with Sean's truck claiming that Sean gave it to him, the local's attitude toward outsiders, and Thompson's own police department that seems to have no control over its horrendous crime rate. Sean's family believes he is a victim of foul play. The guest for this episode is Melinda Ginyard, Sean's sister. Unfound news. I don't talk about work I do behind the scenes too much because I'm never sure if a particular disappearance is going to make it on Unfound. I can't use names at this point, but recently I was able to locate the best friend of a woman who went missing in Las Vegas back in the 1980s. The missing woman's sister had been looking for this friend for at least the last 10 years. The friend and I had an in-depth conversation about what she remembered from back then. She cleared up some facts that weren't facts and added new information to the story that I think will help the sister get people looking at the disappearance again. You'll hear the entire episode soon. Next, I always mention it in the next section, but I want to personally invite all of you to the Unfound Live show on Wednesday nights on Facebook at 9 p.m. Eastern. You can talk to me, ask me questions, as long as they're PG-rated. We talk recent true crime news, and I preview that week's upcoming case. And you get to hear about things before everybody else does. The viewership has been going up recently, so maybe you'd like to be a part of the new group finding the show. Finally, you'll notice this week's case is the first outside the United States, since Unfound covered the disappearance of Ben Charles Padilla in Angola. I'd like to branch out and do some more of these non-USA cases, I know Unfound has listeners all over the world. If you know a missing persons case, and you know someone in the family, let me know. Let's make it happen. Where you can find Unfound. Unfound is on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, iTunes, Podomatic, Stitcher, Podbean, and Spotify. Of course, I already mentioned the Unfound live show on Facebook. The email address, unfoundpodcast at gmail.com. The website unfoundpodcast.com. The website at Triptotomedia, Triblive.com forward slash news, forward slash unfound. Unfound has Patreon and PayPal accounts. Your contributions provide for many of the items guests have received so far. I cannot thank all of Unfound supporters enough. This week I need to thank Kelly. Unfound merchandise, volumes one, two, and three on Amazon in both paperback and ebook form. Let's try to work on getting some great reviews for Volumes 2 and 3. If you've bought them, please give them a nice review. The playing cards go to makeplayingcards.com forward slash sell forward slash unfoundpodcast. And shirts for almost all of Unfound's cases at unfound-podcast.myshopify.com. This includes the flagship t-shirt, The First Year Cases, that has a collage of everyone from Suzanne Lyle to Jennifer Wilkerson in it. Please check it out. And please mention Unfound on all True Crime Facebook pages and other websites and forums. Thank you. I'm so happy to have on this episode of Unfound the sister of
1: Sean Guignard, Melinda Guignard. Melinda, welcome to Unfound. Thank you. Let's start here. Uh, he uh, is your brother. Sean is your brother. How many yes. brothers and sisters do you have?
2: It's just the two of us.
1: Just the two of us. And was he your older or younger brother?
2: He was my older brother.
1: All right. Well, let's get into that. Uh, what kind of relationship uh, did you two have? How close are you in age? How was it, you two, growing up together?
2: Um, Sean and I are 22 months apart. Um, we were very close in age. Um When my parents first started out and got married, they, um, we just had a two bedroom bungalow and my brother and I shared a room until I believe I was two and he was four. And then we got a bigger house. And, um, during our teenage years, we both shared like the downstairs of the house. So we kind of had like our own area and we remained close, like throughout our childhood, our teenage years, all our adult life.
3: Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, what kind of um, interests did you share? Were you like in the video games or the outdoors or what did you, What were you two, what two, two kind of things did you two share?
2: We were outdoors uh, kids. We had a pool. We were in it almost all summer, except for if we were like camping or fishing or mm-hmm. biking. Um, we kind of played Nintendo when it first came out, but we, none of us, neither one of us really got into it. We were, more outside and John was Ad um, fisher and I would tag along with him for a lot of his fishing trips.
3: Uh-huh.
1: And, um, being that he was the older brother, did he look out for you, look out for his uh, younger sister in case anybody was harassing you or anything or?
2: Um, absolutely he <laughs> did. And it was also more so the other way around that I always looked out for him as well because, um, I don't know we were just so close, and I was just um a little bit more of the protective personality than he was.
3: mhm,
1: okay, and so you were twenty two months difference. Would that be like two grades in school difference then yeah,
2: two grades,
1: yeah, okay, and we have to remind the listeners uh this is the first case, um uh, actually technically the second case that we're covering outside the United States. Uh, This is a disappearance that happened in Canada. So uh, in Canada, I have to admit, maybe I'm not as up on education in Canada as I should be, but is it like 12 grades in Canada, just like the United States? So he graduated like he was 17 or 18?
3: Yep. Okay.
1: And did he go to school? Any schooling after that? Or what did Sean do?
2: He he had his welding uh, ticket. Mm-hmm. He was, I think he was a red deal or a red ticket welder.
1: Okay. And, uh, did he get that through schooling or just through on his own? Do you have to go to, to like a trade school for that?
2: Um, he did. He went through schooling. Um, I think it was a trade school and then, uh, right after he was very successful and he, he was always employed as a welder.
1: Okay. And I know here in the United States, welders can make good money. Was that the case with Sean?
2: Yeah, actually, the last year before his disappearance um, was probably his most successful year. Um, He was making very good money. He had purchased a home. He purchased a new vehicle. Uh, He was doing very well for himself.
3: Huh.
1: Okay. And so out of high school, he knew he wanted to go into welding. And how long had he been a welder before he disappeared?
2: Actually, um, it didn't go so smoothly for Sean. Um, he was 18 when, when he got sick. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the year that I was graduating from high school, so Sean did his 13th year at high school, and I just went to grade 12, so Sean had been out of school just... For one year, because he didn't really know what he wanted to do, he was working with our father, um, in a factory, making pretty good money, and um, that was the summer that that we he started to get ill.
1: Okay, and let's talk about this. And the only reason uh, we're talking about this, we're you know, unfound does not exist to pry into people's personal lives, but. Um, we do have to look at things that might have led to a beha- certain behavior or anything like that. Why don't you explain, uh, to the listeners how his schizophrenia, um, you know, happened or when you first remembered it or and how he reacted to it? And we have to remind the listeners that he was 35 years old, uh, when he went missing. So, uh, 34, 34, okay, 34 yeah. years old. So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about, you know, when you first noticed maybe something that was out of the ordinary for your brother.
2: Okay. Actually, I have to correct his age, too, because I know it was it was in 2001 and in 2002 that it happened. So he would have been uh, 20 and then turning 20. He would have been, yeah, turning 20 and then turning 21.
3: Okay. Okay.
2: Okay.
1: Um, well, once again, um, when do you first remember thinking maybe Sean, you know, had this uh, schizophrenia? Uh, and when was he, you know, how did it culminate? You know, when he was going through this, um, what was your experience with it with him?
2: It was, it was very traumatic. It was really, really hard for us. It um very hard for our family. Um, I started to notice it, um, in Sean's 12th year, like in his last year of high school, he started to, um, withdraw from like, he was about to go be in hockey and he would have been very successful getting a full scholarship. Um, and he started to withdraw from that and he was hanging out with his friends more, but he wasn't really doing things that he enjoyed. And, um, He was working with my father and he started to complain like he felt like everybody was watching him and talking about him. And he just became a little bit more um, paranoid. Mm -hmm. And as the summer went on, um, he just got a little bit more agitated and more paranoid about things. And uh, there was a time that um, our parents went away for... a few weeks, um, and it was just him and I at home and, um, just one day I was talking to him, I was having a conversation with him and just like everything changed in his face and his speech changed and, um, he became extremely agitated, extremely paranoid. He was very, very worried. Um hmm. It was as if he had seen a ghost, and I was trying to calm him down, and there was nothing that I could do or say to calm him down because the way that he was talking to me, I couldn't make any sense out of anything. And the more I tried to tell him that I could not understand him, the more angry he became with me. So um, that night I, I left. Um, the home for the night just to let him cool down. I came back in the morning and I noticed he hadn't slept and he had been up all night. And he had the curtains drawn and the lights off. And um, he was complaining that pollution was coming into the house and making him sick. And um, I noticed like paper lying all over the house and it was his writing and it was it wasn't making any sense. So I put it up to him and I said, like, what does this say? And he just became angry with me that I could not read what was happening. So
3: mm-hmm.
2: I knew I knew something was going on. I had no clue what was happening at all. So at the time I was in uh, college taking a pre-health science course and I went to my professors and I spoke to them about these symptoms that my brother was having and you know was asking them what what it could be and what I could do to help him and they had mentioned about mental illness and about the term schizophrenia which I had not been familiar with whatsoever. So
3: um
2: at that point it just came became that I needed to just keep him calm and at bay until my parents came home so that we could do something together about it. Mm-hmm and
3: it,
1: is this something that continued or it, was it something that he had a moment of clarity where he finally realized something was going on with him and he, he wanted to get help or did he have to be no no, nothing did he no it, it
2: went worse it went um mm. bad it went from bad to worse and uh he started leaving the house in the middle of the night and we would get calls from the police that he was walking on the highway, um, like, talking to himself. Um, He destroyed his personal belongings. He burnt all of his paperwork because he just felt like he was being watched and followed. Like, he destroyed his clothes because they said that, he said that they weren't providing him with warmth anymore. There was just, just uh, numer- He wouldn't eat because he thought that he was being poisoned from the family. Um, it just it wouldn't stop. And between me going to my professor um, at college and my parents going to our family doctor, we had realized that the only way that we were going to get help for him was that we had to wait until he became a danger to himself or to somebody else and call 911 and get him placed into um a mental hospital for an assessment. Hmm. Wow. And yeah.
1: this was in this was in his uh early 20s. Uh so he somehow though, um he did get help somehow.
2: It took for 6 years we as a family for 6 years we struggled with him. Um he uh-huh. would not take his medication, he would not own up to having a problem he did not believe he had a problem he refused any treatment whatsoever and actually um he he left the home and he moved to bc um to stay with a friend and uh the friend was a little wasn't was a little bit aware of how sick sean was but didn't really grasp the concept of how sick he was until he had to live with him yeah And um, that relationship went sour, and Sean got a place on his own where eventually he got in trouble for walking around the town uh, naked and talking to himself. And um, Mm -hmm. when he got picked up by police, he was put in a hospital. So from there, um, he actually got himself treated a little bit in B.C.
3: Mm -hmm. And
2: at the time, I had... Um, had my child, who was uh, just maybe a few months old, and Sean decided that he did not want his niece to learn that he had schizophrenia, and he wanted to overcome the stigma and overcome the illness so that he could provide and be a good uncle to my daughter. Mm -hmm. And that's what changed Sean's life.
1: Wow, so six years of no medication, you and your family you know struggling you know to you know I guess keep him maybe out of jail, keep him out of trouble, yeah. um yeah. keep him out of any you know strange circumstances he might get himself into, and then finally, you said he went to b c which I'm going to guess is British columbia, yes yeah, all right, British so columbia. all right, so he went the whole way across Canada from Ontario to British Columbia to live with a friend, but then had to come back. Because things didn't work out, um was he able to hold a job at at this time? I mean, I can't believe anybody no. would have wanted to employ him at this time
2: no uh he he did not have a job for the six years at all. He was on um a disability
3: mhm,
2: and um he was he remained on disability until in 2009 he got a job in the apartment that he was staying at as a landlord. Um and then from that he pro- progressed into opening his own cleaning company. So he had a company called Clean it Paint it that he ran by himself. And then from there he saved the money and that's when he put himself into welding school. Okay. So at this point though,
1: I mean I'm guessing your family had to be after six years of that, I mean, you had to be really excited about how things had turned around. Absolutely. Okay.
2: Everything everything was going well in all aspects of all of our lives.
1: Okay. But things uh, at some point went, unfortunately, the other uh, direction. Right? You know, when did that start happening? Um, this is, I guess, much closer to when he disappeared. When did things start yeah. going the other direction. What do you, what do you think was the uh, precursor to all of it?
2: Um, he, he had a, a, sh- a fairly long-term relationship with somebody and um, that they had separated and um, Sean was on his own. And that's when he, he purchased his own house and he purchased his own vehicle and he was doing very well in his career. And um, i he just got, he started to get really bored of where he was and what he was doing. And he just wanted more. He, uh, he wanted to go back to school and now get a mechanics license so he could do work with both. Um, he wanted to work out in the gold mine. So he was, he was trying hard to network himself out West. He wanted mm. to rent out his home and then go out West and try to make more money or, try to get himself into the mind
1: okay so he had goals he you know he's on his medication and he could think about you know his next step in life um when he was this clear-headed person on his medication did he ever talk about uh the other side of him that could occur if he didn't take his medication did he ever talk to you about his schizophrenia
2: we talked about it yeah we um we definitely, when he was well, we focused on, like, how well he was doing. Um, Sean was the kind of person that if you met him while he was, you know, on his medication and doing well, you would have never, ever thought that he had a mental illness. Like, mm-hmm. he was, um, he was well put together. He was well presented. He was well socialized. And, um, what happened was that's when, and so in late 2013, early 2014, um, Sean started to develop thyroid disease and it started to have, um, side effects on him that he was, um, losing a lot of weight. He was shaking and he was sweating and he brought that to his psychiatrist's attention. And they decided that they were going to lower his medication before, you know, they ran any tests or anything else. So between the two of them, they had lowered their medication quite severely that um, by the time that my brother realized that the medication wasn't working anymore, it was too late and the illness had taken over. And now he's not acting like himself and everybody's aware of that. He's just not in the frame of mind where he's noticing it, but it is affecting his life.
1: Okay. So this thyroid condition, they try to wean him off some of the, the, um, psychiatric medication and what it did was it just brought, uh, that other part of him right back.
2: Yes, it did. It made him relapse terribly. Okay. Okay.
1: Um, so we get closer to, you said 2015. And maybe something else that you'd brought up that might have um, also been very difficult for Sean was your father had some health problems as well, and it seemed to affect Sean.
2: Yeah, in 2015, um, my father had a knee replacement surgery, and while he had the surgery, he contracted a very rare Um, infection that infected all of his internal organs. And um, my father, being uh, a drinker, his liver was not the strongest to begin with, and he did get cirrhosis of the liver, and he was actually in a coma for nearly one week.
1: And Sean, of course, knew about this. And, in fact, at the time this happened, wasn't Sean in, in the same hospital?
2: He was actually at first when my father, first when we found out that he had the infection and he wasn't doing well, um, they told us right away they didn't know whether or not he was going to make it. And at the time, Sean was um, visiting in Quebec. Mm
3: -hmm. So
2: we got a hold of Sean and we told him that he needed to come home because there was a family emergency. So he did. And when he came home and he seen my father in the condition that he was in, he realized that. He, uh, he wasn't doing well himself and he probably could not handle it. And that night he went and he signed himself into the psychiatric ward under, uh, under a 72 hour, um, observation, willingly.
1: Okay. Um, so your father is in, in the hospital. Um, but he does recover. Your father is still alive today, right? 2008. Yeah, he is. He is.
2: But however, um, you know, Sean's already gone before he knows that.
1: Okay. All right. And let's talk about that now. At some point, Sean does get out of the hospital after this 72 hours. What brings about, uh, him moving from Ontario and I guess in the St. Catherine area, which I, I kind of know, To Manitoba. And how did your family feel about this, especially given that uh, he seemed to, uh, his schizophrenia had had kind of come back and maybe he wasn't taking his medication the way he should?
2: We, nobody, nobody was in support of him leaving at West at the time that he did, in the condition that he did, and with our father in the situation that he was. No, none of our family, um, wanted him to do this and uh this is something that he knew of and he left in the middle of the night um in july of 2015 and uh he didn't let anyone know where he was until he was already in manitoba
1: yeah and manitoba is not next to ontario it's a pretty good drive from ontario uh province to Manitoba out there, which is uh, in the mid, which would be north of the Midwest of the United States, kind of like north of Montana or something like that. So it's a good drive. It is. It's a, it's a long drive. It's
2: a three-day, three, three four-day drive.
1: Okay. So he has his truck, and the truck is going to play a part in this later. Your family yeah. was, uh, but he, this was uh, going back to that gold of uh, goal of working in the gold mines, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Because there are gold mines up in northern Manitoba that, like you said before, he maybe wanted to work there. And yep. that's seemingly why he went out there, but he still was not on his medication. He was still fighting that.
2: Absolutely, yeah. He was not on his medication, but in his mind, he was going to go down there and he was going to get a job in the mine. Okay.
1: All right. So he gets out there. I mean,. In it once again, in a just so people can understand this, I have no schizophrenia uh, experience in my life, but I'm sure some of the listeners do, but I'm sure many do not. Uh, once again, in a moment of clarity, could Sean, before he left, could he ever explain why he didn't want to take his
2: medication? Uh, he. The only thing at the time that he was saying was that it was um, making him shake, and it was making Mm -hmm. him sweat, and it wasn't making him feel like himself. So he thought that he was better without it.
1: Okay. All right. Thank you for that. So he gets out to Manitoba. And what have you learned about, Was I mean, when, once he got out there, did he call you? Did he have a cell phone? I mean, how did you eventually did. find out that he was in in Manitoba, and what was he doing out there?
2: He called us when he reached a town called Lynn Lake. Um, he actually ended up staying in Lynn Lake from uh, July until November. Um, he worked various different jobs. There were some jobs that he worked where they would provide shelter for him and uh, they would, you know, pay him cash daily. Um, there was other, he worked at a gas station at one point while he was staying with um, a woman that I believe he was seeing.
3: Okay.
2: Um, and I, and led to believe that this relationship went sour and Sean was, in search of another place to stay, and um this is in late November now, and he's told that if he goes to Thompson, Manitoba, that there's um lots of lots of people looking for workers so that he'd find work, and that he could also get a connection better connection to the gold mines where he wanted to be all right and Sean arrived in Thompson, Manitoba on november twenty first of 2015.
1: So not long, he was only in Thompson, not very long before he disappeared. One week. One week, okay. Uh, you
2: apparently... said this You
1: said this place uh, in Manitoba, the first place he went to was Lynn Lake? Yep. Okay. And we have to get something I think on the record here because I think in some places uh, this timeline has gotten a little messed up because I think if you read some stories out there, there's an altercation at at a hospital that is connected to his disappearance but actually yeah. this altercation at the hospital and where he disappeared from are two separate cities
3: totally.
2: totally completely and they're actually about 600 uh kilometers separate from each other so completely different cities completely different areas
1: okay please explain to the listeners uh this altercation at the hospital And then maybe just your opinion on how that all got mashed together into one story, when it should be two separate stories.
2: Um, We were told right from the get-go that um, we we were led to assume that there was an altercation at the hospital, and Sean left the hospital and returned to the Thompson homeless shelter where he was staying, and then he disappeared from there that morning.
3: Mm Mm -hmm.
2: However, um, we later found out that that was not true, that the altercation with the hospital happened in Lynn Lake, and that might have contributed to why he moved on
3: to Thompson. Okay.
1: Okay. So what you're saying is that uh, maybe the altercation at in, in Lynn Lake happened maybe the middle of November of that year, maybe. I don't know if you have a date exact date or not, but
2: No, we were never given a date. We were just given a time frame in the fact that it happened in Lynn Lake. hmm And it was given it was given out as a reference as to how Sean's behavior could have been at the time of his disappearance.
3: Okay.
1: What did actually happen at at the hospital? And, and, and I think that I know enough about this case is that you believe, and I, I, of course, believe this altercation that happened in the hospital has nothing to do with his disappearance at all. But maybe we should just explain what did happen anyway.
2: So apparently, so Sean um, shows up in Lynn Lake, and he has this truck, and um, he's, he's befriended uh, almost the whole entire community. And um, he has a fellow friend that I know is a woman who um, may have the same um, mental illness as my brother, if not very similar to it. And she asked my brother for a ride to the hospital, and my brother went along with her, accompanied her to the hospital to get the treatment that she wanted. And while they were at the hospital, Sean found out that she was going to be put on medication that he had been put on in the past and Sean was strongly recommending her not to take the medication. So there was a discussion between Sean, the woman, and the nurse, and uh, the woman who was being treated at the hospital at the time, and the nurse both asked Sean to leave, in which he did leave without incident.
1: Okay. So there really wasn't an altercation, maybe just... Him arguing with nurses and doctors about uh, this woman that he cared about and didn't want her to be on the same medication. Of course, he hadn't been taking his medication for a while.
2: Exactly, and apparently he was very passionate about why yeah. he felt she did not want – she she should not be on the medication.
1: Okay. Maybe one more thing about this before we get into Thompson, uh, Manitoba. While your brother, Sean, was off his medication and, and schizophrenic, was he ever necessarily violent?
2: Never, never, okay. ever physically violent, never, um, never to himself, never to anybody else.
1: All right. He was in, in fact, what, how was he? You, you said he was, you have told me that he was kind of almost exactly the opposite. He was very trusting. Was. How would you portray that?
2: Um, Sean, when he wasn't on his medication, he was um, very kind, very gentle. He seen uh, the good in everybody and everything, and he was overly um, naive and overly trusting to the point Mm -hmm. that you could never even warn him of a dangerous person because he would look at that dangerous person and see the good in them.
1: Yeah, I think when we talked before, you had said that he almost felt like he had this—I don't know—magical quality of being able to see the good in people, or, or something he like did. like something like that. that he, m- he
2: just felt like he, like everybody, had some good in the, good in them, and they're just bad people. There just wasn't any bad people.
1: Okay, so that might have uh, caused him to maybe get himself into some situations that he didn't really understand the gravity of it. Absolutely, I think so. Okay, and once again, once we get to uh, the circumstance of his disappearance, I think maybe people will be under, able to understand that. So, he's in Lynn Lake. Uh, doesn't want this uh, girl, the this woman that he got to know very well, to take her medication. And uh, mm-hmm. we we know why he would be fighting against that. You know, because of his personal experience. Then you believe possibly that caused him to move out of Lynn Lake. Up to Thompson. Let's I, talk. I, I just you, you believe so? Okay. Yeah. So let's talk about Thompson, Manitoba. I'm going to guess that probably most people have never heard of this city, and I'm going to guess that you probably had never even heard of it until you found out that Sean ended up there.
2: What, I never have.
1: What have you learned about Thompson, Manitoba, just in general? Uh, and it's very surprising to me because, as an American, we know the crime statistics between the United States and Canada. Canada's a very safe, civilized country. There's like 30, right. 32 million people in there. Not a very high crime rate. Yes, maybe there's some shady places like in Chicago or uh, tr- Toronto, maybe Vancouver, right. but other than that, very low crime rate. But Thompson, Manitoba. What can you tell the listeners about Thompson?
2: When I first heard of uh, where my brother went missing, of course, the first thing that I do is I Google the town and right away um, it says that um, it says Thompson is topped the violent crime severity index and finished second in both overall crime severity index column and nonviolent crime severity index column. Uh, in several different years, so what I did learn is that um, Thompson is called the hub of the North, and a lot of um, very remote, isolated communities um, north of Thompson um, that are only like airplane access Damn. actually um, actually use Thompson, Manitoba as um, all of their like medicals. Um, It's their main town for shopping. And I am led to believe that it has a very large mental health um, hospital and a lot of um, Aboriginal people from very um, secluded reservations are flown into Thompson regularly for mental health treatment. And um, due to the lack of accessibility in these communities, Sometimes the um, the members will be dropped off on like the Saturday for an appointment that they would have on the following Wednesday and they don't really have any money or anywhere to stay so they stay at the homeless shelter and a lot of them participate in illegal activities, a lot of them will huff gas, they drink m- mouthwash, the whole town um, has a ban on aerosol ca- cans. They have to be behind the counter. Um, it's just n- a, not a very nice town to be in.
1: Not the stereotypical city you think of when we think of Canada.
3: For not sure, at for, all.
1: For sure. And in fact, uh, per capita, Thompson may be the most dangerous place to live in Canada.
2: Absolutely. Now, I'm not,
1: I mean, granted, Toronto is this huge city. They're way more Bad things that happen in Toronto, but as a percentage of the population, Thompson is actually more dangerous.
2: Well, th- in Toronto, uh, the majority of the crimes are solved.
3: Mm-hmm. The
2: murders are solved. The disappearances are solved. The every every a lot of them are. But in Thompson, they have the highest severity of the crimes. So the crimes are more and in, more intense in severity, and they're also the majority of them are unsolved.
3: Okay.
1: And once again, it doesn't help when they're bringing in these people uh, for mental help, and they're just dropped off there to be left on their own for several days at a time. Yep. And then picked up like a week later or
2: something. Yeah, where they're getting exposed to drugs and alcohol that they um, had had never experienced with before.
1: And on top of that, Thompson is is in northern Manitoba, which means come November, it's pretty
0: cold there.
2: Yeah, it was negative 17 on the day that Sean went, disappeared. Okay. Uh, with a wind chill of negative 30.
1: Wow. Okay. So, Sean, this is where Sean ended up. One way or the other, this is where he ended up. Um, he um, chose but- to be there. You know, he drove up there. Yeah. And because this is a connection to the gold mine industry in Canada. He has his truck, but where what did you find out? Where was he living and um he was only there a week but yeah. even well even before that day he disappeared he had some issues. Why don't you talk about all of that? What have you learned?
2: Um I learned that Sean Sean showed up at the Thompson Homeless Shelter and at first he was welcomed very friendly and um he right away um he befriended uh, a bunch of different people. I did learn that there was one gentleman that felt threatened by Sean, and um, I think it was on his second night at the homeless shelter, they um, they had an altercation. The gentleman, um, I don't know if I'm able to release names.
1: Please do. It, yeah, sure.
2: Um, Malcolm was his name. Okay. Um, beat beat Sean up and actually was uh, jailed for a breach of probation from the Thompson Shelter for that incident.
1: Okay, so he's only there two days and already he's having a fight with somebody else at the shelter, probably somebody who had been in Thompson for a long time, unlike Sean, who's the new guy. Um, So he has his truck. uh, He got beat up. Did anything get stolen at that time? I mean, how bad were Sean's injuries? Um, Do you know?
2: I was told that the fight was broken up, so other than um a couple sucker punches, Sean did not have suffer any injuries. Okay. Um the staff really liked Sean and they they called the police right away and the gentleman was was put in jail for it. Um but other than that incident, I was told that Sean switched from staying inside the shelter to staying in his truck because he felt like um, people were after him or he felt like people were watching him or just uh, he didn't feel safe. And um, he had turned in his passport and his wallet to the staff of the shelter because he was not sure that it wouldn't get stolen. So he wanted them to hang on to it for him, but he did inform them that he would be back for it.
1: Huh. Okay. Okay. So even though he was off his medication and uh, like you said, he was kind of paranoid and everything, he could somehow think through this and wanted to make sure that somebody had his important, um, identification.
2: Yeah, he was, he didn't feel comfortable, um, probably Mm -hmm. due to the fight and maybe, maybe some other things that may have happened, but he, he definitely, um, was able to sense some sort of danger, and that was what he thought was best to do in that situation. Okay, and
1: maybe just so the listeners know, during this time, uh, how often was he, did he have a cell phone? Uh, Was he contacting your parents, or were you talking to them? Did you or, uh, you know, even before he got to Thompson, uh, who was actually communicating with him?
2: it was, it was mostly my parents, um, my father in particular, because he was at home now and now he's not working. So, um, when Sean calls home, the majority of the time it's my father or my mother answering. And he did call me as well. Um, mostly when his cell phone was working, but he did have his cell phone disconnected, um, at some point, maybe, uh, a month and a half before he made it to Thompson. So he was still in Lynn Lake when his cell phone was disconnected. So we would receive uh, collect calls from him.
1: Okay. So he was talking to you, uh, he was talking to your family. Um, when he, one of the times he called back, uh, did it was, did he tell you about or your parents about getting beat up or was that not something you found out until he disappeared?
2: I I found that out after he disappeared when I was um, doing my own research as to where – what could have happened to my brother.
1: Okay. So we have this guy, Malcolm. Uh, He went to jail. Um, Would it be responsible for Sean to file – did Sean file a a report against him, or was it just enough for the police to show up and find out that this guy broke his probation to get him back in jail?
2: Um, He – he, Sean did not file a report, and he did not want to, uh, I'm told. Uh, it was the fact that the police were called, and the gentleman was on probation for previous assault, so he went directly to jail for that. Okay.
1: And this Malcolm guy, was he in jail at the time that Sean disappeared? Yes, he was. All right, so even though the listeners that might perk their ears up, uh it is known that he was in jail when Sean disappeared so I could not have been responsible for Sean's disappearance.
2: Yeah, and I also did um did look into whether or not it was feasible for him to have somebody um attack my brother Mm -hmm. or to retaliate on my brother somehow. And I was told that that was not a possibility at all, that Malcolm did not have any phone calls going out and he did not receive any phone calls coming in.
1: Okay. That's, that's really complete work there, Melinda. That's nicely done. Okay. Uh, One more thing before we get to the day that uh, he disappeared, at least the last day that he was seen, um, during one of these phone calls, uh, did maybe your parents think that uh, Sean was hallucinating?
2: Almost all of them, my parents kept saying that he's just, he's not well. They wanted him to come home. They they had, had a lot of arguments over the phone about my parents strongly suggesting that he comes home.
1: Of course, and of course, he wasn't listening to them. He was intent on staying in Thompson. But I only ask you about the hallucination uh, issue because it might have been something that uh, brings about his disappearance, which we'll get into in a second. But that was something yeah. that you say had been going on for a while during phone calls.
2: The last phone call that I had with him, he was visibly he was having visual hallucinations. He had told me that he had found some clear uncut diamonds at the beach and that they were worth a substantial amount of money and that he was going to find somebody that he thought truly deserved them and that he was going to gift them to them.
1: So we moved to that day, November 28, 2015. What, in being that when you started your own investigation into all of this, what have you personally learned about that day?
2: That day, I learned that um, 6.45 a.m., Sean was standing at the back of the Thompson Homeless Shelter having a cigarette. Mm-hmm. And he spoke about people being after him and that he didn't feel safe and that he needed to leave.
1: Okay. And and who uh, told you this? Was it somebody that worked at the shelter that heard him say this, or who was it?
2: At first, I heard it from the police, and then I uh, called the shelter myself, and I did; con- it was confirmed that it was at approximately 6.45 a.m. that he was seen having a smoke at the back of the shelter, um, speaking about yeah somebody being after him and him needing to leave.
1: Okay. And because of it, once again, because he's not on his medication, maybe it was just him hallucinating somebody was after him, or... It might have could have been reality,
2: could have been. Yep, it could okay. have been either or. Okay. When
1: did you learn about uh, this uh, card game? I guess they were playing Euchre maybe. I'm not familiar with card games, I'll admit it, but they were playing cards. He was playing yeah. go- cards with two guy, two girls and another yeah. guy at the shelter. When did this occur, and, and what happened during that?
2: So this happened on um, November 27th of 2015, so the night before Sean went missing, or Sean is last seen,
3: um,
2: that was a day that everybody who was receiving welfare would have got paid and would have got their welfare money. Um, Sean would have not received any money because he was just working cash jobs. So people at the shelter, the majority of them were paid, I was told. And, um, the majority of them did have alcohol and, or like cigarettes and maybe, uh, drugs that I did hear that Sean was not participating in any drug use, but he was consuming alcohol. And I heard that, um, he was playing cards with the two girl, two ladies and a man, and they were giving him drinks because Sean would not have gotten paid that day, but, Sean actually made a promise to them that he would pay them back for the drinks that he consumed.
1: And once again from me once again from what you've learned though, Sean I I got the idea was making some extravagant claims about how he could pay them back.
2: I I think he may have made some claims about like don't worry about it, I'll have the money no problem, it's not an issue. Mm-hmm. And, um, just from the time that I talked to him last when he was talking about, you know, seeing the uncut diamonds and them being of value, um, I mean, I hope he wasn't saying that to them because that would put him at a very high risk.
3: Yeah.
1: Right. You know, if this was a, I, I don't know how a high stakes, a card game it could get into, uh, given the people involved, but uh, if he was telling them, you know, some things about how he had money and everything, it might have been setting him up for a robbery or something. Possibly. I
2: think he I absolutely think that's true.
1: So let me set this up for the listeners. So not long after he gets to Thompson, he gets into this altercation, this fight with Malcolm, Malcolm goes to jail. Malcolm is yeah. still in jail at the time that uh Sean is at this homeless shelter twenty seventh, twenty eighth. Uh the night yeah. before Sean has uh, this card game with two girls and a guy, uh, maybe he's drinking a little too much. We know he's yeah. not on his medication, so no. so he might be telling some stories, and these two girls and this guy might not realize that it's just him talking. They might take it actually as the truth. We just don't know. And then the next right. morning, um, somebody at the shelter or somebody sees uh, Sean. He's behind the shelter, and he's claiming that somebody is – is after him this is six forty-five in the morning and once you again you said yep. it's very very cold there um did he not actually also make a call to your dad that same morning
2: we're very sure that he did um my father at the time was not very well and it's very difficult to determine the exact day because um sean was not unfortunately reported missing right away and we were not, unfortunately, notified right away as soon as he was reported missing. There was several days that had lapsed in between. Hmm. So my father, a uh, little bit unsure of the days, but it was definitely shortly before his disappearance.
1: Obviously, November 28th, at least in the United States, that would be around Thanksgiving. Um yeah. Does is, is your father think in retrospect it could have been maybe the 27th or the 26th or even possibly the 29th or 30th? Yeah, it
3: it,
2: it was definitely very, very close to his disappearance. It was definitely okay. before his disappearance. Mm-hmm. Um, he's just not sure whether or not it was the day of or a couple of days before.
1: Okay. And you and I, Melinda, we'd actually talked about maybe talking to your parents to see if they could big dig up their phone records to find that out.
2: Yeah, and we actually – we were not able to do that, and the only people who can do that are the police, which for whatever reason, they did not.
1: Okay. Um, Maybe we need to have a longer conversation about that after uh, this interview, but suffice to say, you've looked into getting that information, and you've not been able to get it at this moment. No,
2: no. no, and we were also told that um it might not help in the case
3: okay that Sorry. that
2: was not um that was not any important details of his disappearance, and that it it was not connected to the disappearance.
1: I think I have a different opinion on that, but once again, it's not uh for yeah. the the for the coverage of this interview, but just suffice to say some maybe that morning maybe the me the morning before Sean called your dad, and what was the tone of that phone call?
2: He, uh, he needed money. He was, um, I think he was at a desperate state that he needed the money and, um, he was being very belligerent to my parents about how badly he needed the money. Mm-hmm. And, um, Sean ended up hanging up the phone angry with my father that he was not able to get the money immediately.
1: And this call was early in the morning?
2: It was.
3: Okay. And it was early
2: in the morning and um I have to say that my father is not um my mother does all the banking, my father's not on a computer, he does not you know, he doesn't even he barely use debit. So when my brother's calling asking him for money transfers and things like that, my father has no clue how to help him. Oh,
1: yeah. And uh so if he was calling your dad maybe it's eight in the morning in uh, the eastern time zone in ontario and sean is calling from manitoba which is in what two hours behind maybe two hours yeah so yeah. he could have been calling your dad at like six in the morning his time absolutely all right which made lead uh people to believe well Maybe it was the same morning being that somebody did see him up at 6.45 a.m. November 28th. So it's possible it was the same morning. We're just not sure. I think the time of day, that morning, would also lead to the desperation you yeah. know, that, that Sean might have had on wanting to get the money calling your dad so early in the morning. Okay, so well, the last registered sighting of him is the morning of November 28th. Um, When does your family know that maybe something's not right? Days after, three days after, two days after? What do you think?
2: Um, I believe that we did not find out until December 3rd. I'm not sure the exact date. Um, Things got very hectic at that time. Um, I do believe that on, I do know for sure that on December 3rd was the day that he was reported missing. And I'm not sure if we got notified that same day or a couple, or shortly after.
1: Okay. And what brought on uh, this, I mean, you hadn't talked to him, your parents hadn't talked to him, that didn't raise any red flags. Uh, It was actually the police that called you.
2: It was the police that called us because John had a pass. We, We wouldn't hear from him for, you know, a week and a half, two weeks maybe, and that would be okay because... You know, we knew that we would hear from him eventually. Um, Sean, you know, like we, like I said, Sean did travel to BC before, and we were in um, full support of him doing that. And while he was in Manitoba, we were not in support of him doing it, but we were still like very appreciative of his phone calls, and right. he was making phone calls.
1: Okay. December 3rd, though, was a significant day. The reason they called you is because although Sean was missing, uh, they found Sean's truck. Who had Sean's truck?
2: They did not release the name, but it was uh, a gentleman known to the police um, as a local, like, drunk. And they did find his truck. It was reported that this man, the local, like, alcoholic that did not have a vehicle before was now driving in the vehicle that was known to be Sean Ginyard's truck.
1: And this guy was not trying to hide it. He wasn't trying to sell it. No. He was just driving it around as if nothing was wrong.
2: Yeah. He His only question for the police was whether or not he could still keep the truck. Huh.
1: So somebody saw somebody's driving Sean's truck. They called it in. Police show up, they find this other guy. Uh, is, would the, do you have any idea, would this been a guy that Sean knew?
2: Um, I believe that, so the people who were playing cards with Sean, um, they had told the police that Sean gave away all of his stuff before he disappeared, and that the gentleman, uh, Oliver, uh, the man that was playing cards with Sean the night before, was given the vehicle. And at some point, he regifted it to somebody else, and that person was the one that the police were called on.
1: Okay, so somehow the guy that was driving Sean's truck knew the guy that was playing cards with Sean on November 27th. Somehow they knew each yeah. other. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, they not sure if the truck was stolen, not sure if Sean actually did give it away, not sure maybe Sean sold it. We just uh, don't know. I mean, we know what they say, but uh it's very suspicious. Uh what kind of yeah. condition was the truck in? Any evidence in it? Uh anything like that?
2: The truck was in horrible condition. The dashboard was ripped off and it was all it was hot wired at some point. Um there was tons of like cigarette butts, ashes, uh, drug paraphernalia. Um there was just a horrible stench to the truck. It didn't smell right. It didn't look right. It definitely looked like um, somebody who didn't belong there was living in the truck.
1: All right. And do you think that maybe that was the condition? I mean, it was only maybe less than a week since Sean disappeared to the truck being found. Do you think that that was how Sean was living in it? Or do you think somebody else did that to
2: all it? Well, I do know that Sean was a smoker, but, um, Sean is a relatively tidy guy and I don't think that he would be living in the truck in that condition at all.
1: Okay. All right. So we have this guy, Oliver, who was playing the cards. Was he asked about the truck? I mean, what did he have to say? Do you have any idea about, did, did the whole story hold up that he gave it to somebody else?
2: He, um, we are, we're not really told the details of it. Um, the only thing that we have been told was that the gentleman claims that he was given the truck to by Sean. Mm-hmm. And um, one thing that I will add is that Sean's wallet that he had at the homeless shelter did contain his ownership and Sean did not ever sign it over.
1: All right, so it would maybe lead you to believe that uh might have been stolen. Maybe it, something did something went, to Sean and just uh it does, you know, and then they took the truck, although I have to say it'd be fairly odd for somebody to do something to Sean and then continue to drive his truck around.
2: Yeah, it c- could very well have been given to somebody that maybe Sean owed money to. I I'm not sure, but I I don't, um, I'm not, I'm not too sure how everything played out, but I just don't believe entirely that Sean was, that somebody was just handed Sean's truck.
3: Right. Uh, I agree.
1: Yeah, I agree. All right. So, uh, the police, uh, we've already talked about how many cases go unsolved in Thompson. What did they do? Uh, the police.
2: Contacted our family to let us know that uh, Sean was reported missing, that he had spoke about, he felt that people were after him and that he had given away his possessions.
1: And And that
2: he was traveling with no ID, no identification or cash at all.
1: But the police didn't do much outside of that, did they?
2: Well, they were playing the waiting game. Um, Hmm. They, had thought that Sean was uh, relocating towns, like he did from the L- Lynn Lake to Thompson and they were waiting for him to turn up somewhere, but he never did.
1: All right. So the police kind of throw their hands up in the air. Of course, uh, they're going to find out that about your brother and how he has schizophrenia. Maybe that added into their, uh, you know, the, the lack of work. Uh, of yeah. course, you know, they, of course they went and, put the one guy in jail, uh, Malcolm, and they uh found the truck, I guess you could say, and took care of that and and everything, yeah. but they really didn't develop any leads as to anybody seeing Sean after that six forty AM sighting on November twenty eighth, twenty fifteen.
2: Nothing whatsoever and um I did some extensive Um, reaching out to the community in Manitoba through online. Um, I had posters plastered all over the city. I um, posted ads on Kijiji. Um, I looked for events in the area that I thought that maybe Sean would show up at, and I called them ahead of time, and I asked them if I could give them his poster and if they could put it up and just have their eye out for him um i also um at that time during the summer of 2016 was the Fort McMurray forest fires and um a huge amount of out west got uh relocated due to forest fires and i contacted all of the outreach programs for all of the communities that took in the people affected by the forest fires And he never turned up out of there either.
1: So it's virtually like he's behind that shelter at 6.45 Mm a.m.
2: And then after
1: that, just poof, into thin air.
2: Uh, He was using um, the train going back and forth from Churchill, Manitoba to Thompson, Manitoba before November 27th. Um, but he did not go on the train after that at all. And in that community, in order for you to get on the train, you have to show your ID or you're not allowed on. And uh, there's no no registration. There's nothing of Sean Ginyard buying a train ticket, being on the plane or on the train, or even going to the train station to inquire about a ticket.
3: Okay.
1: You mentioned Sean's wallet. At some point, uh, you got it back. I it. Um, you know, You said that the shelter had it. They eventually gave it back to you. But what was interesting is you found a bunch of phone numbers in it. Why don't you tell the listeners about that?
2: So when I looked in my uh, brother's wallet, I found um, a business card um, for pretty much almost every town that he had stopped in on his way out. I found out that he spent a little bit of time in Sudbury, Ontario, before he went out West looking for work and there was nothing there. So I think that it was just through word of mouth as to how he got himself to Manitoba, that he was stopping in towns and just asking where the work was. So, um, I I found a stack of, of numbers. There was about four or five numbers and, um, The majority of the numbers were from uh, Lynn Lake and Thompson. And it was um, one of them uh, was a lady. She was a justice of the peace. And she did not know who my brother was. But at the time that Sean was staying in Lynn Lake was a time that she was hiring somebody um, to work for her. So she thinks that Sean was given her number for work. But Sean never did contact that lady. Mm -hmm. Um, another number was her son and I spoke to him and Sean did actually contact him. He, um, he said that he did not have work for him and asked where Sean was staying. And, um, Sean told the gentleman where he was staying. And the very next day, um, he went there and he picked Sean up and Sean worked with him for one day, but he didn't have anything after that. And, um, Another another number was in there called the Life Saving Society, and um, I am told that at some point when Sean was in Lynn Lake, he had made just some very subtle comments about ending his life, and I believe that somebody gave him that number to reach for him in case, you know, he decided to go that route. However, I am told that um, the next day after Sean made that claim, his friends followed up with him and asked him how he was feeling, and he said he was feeling so much better, and he actually regretted saying that.
1: So all these numbers are in this wallet. Uh, Just to be sure, this is a wallet that was turned into the shelter? Yep. Did the police ever see that wallet?
2: The police had the wallet in their possession the whole time.
1: And what do you mean? The whole time? How long do you would you say they had the wallet?
2: Um, since the missing persons report was made, so the um, that was another reason why the missing persons report was made was not only was the community members of the community driving around in Sean's vehicle, but they also still had Sean's wallet that Sean had told them that he would go back to get before he left again. So they were really concerned as to why Sean didn't do that.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And um, another thing was that on the morning of November 28th, um, Sean was unsure of whether or not he was going to stay at the shelter that night. So he did ask the staff to stay, save him a room just in case, but he never claimed mm-hmm. the room. So the the bed was given to somebody else.
3: Okay.
1: And another important part about the wallet is the police had it for a certain amount of time, and you found out the p- police had the wallet. They never called any of the, n- the numbers in the wallet. You did it, and you yeah. when you called the numbers, you asked if the police ever called these people. The police never called any of these people.
2: They never once called any of those people, never. They never heard from the police. They were very aware of the fact that Sean was missing. They were – unaware uh, that their numbers were in his wallet and none of them had been spoken to by the police.
1: That had to be a little saddening when you found that out.
2: It was heartbreaking. Hmm.
1: Not to say that any of those people had anything to do with Sean's disappearance, but you'd think that would be the natural thing to do if police got a wallet of a missing person.
2: I just felt like... I mean, I'm sure everybody with missing loved ones feel like this, but I just felt like there could have been a lot more that the RCMP did at the time, and they did not. So me seeing, like me requesting the wallet and then getting the wallet, you know, I seen the numbers and I, I sat on it for probably about two weeks. And then one night I decided just, hey, maybe I'm going to call these numbers and see whether or not they had talked to the police and just asked them if they could tell me what they told the police. And I was extremely shocked to hear that they had never spoken to them at all.
1: I guess this just goes back to all those crimes being unsolved in Thompson. Yeah. Maybe, maybe it's uh, an indication of the police work that's not getting done there as well.
2: A combination of that and, the fact, an overwhelm, overwhelming amount of crimes that are taking place.
1: Right. Right. So we have that. We have the wallet that you eventually got back. Once again, how long how long did the police have the wallet before you got it back?
2: Um, almost two years.
1: Wow. Okay.
2: John was missing uh, November 2015. I got the wallet back in... um. May of
1: 2017. Okay. Uh, did you know that they had the wallet, or did you think that the wallet disappeared with Sean?
2: I had known that they had the wallet the whole time.
1: Okay. All right. Okay. Uh, did you get back anything else uh, from Sean? What exactly did he disappear with? I mean, if he didn't have his wallet, did he have anything? I know that he had the cell phone that uh, he wasn't using, but anything else disappear with Sean?
2: Um, I just wanted to add one thing about the wallet that there was a police. picture, police. um, there was a picture in the wallet that the police did not have written down of the, on the list of the contents of the wallet that I talked to the officer and he said that he did not notice the picture in the wallet, but I did. And I posted it online on my group, find Sean that I have, um, over 700 followers on
3: okay. and,
2: uh, People identified the woman almost right away, and I spoke to the woman's daughter, who let me know that she, her mother, did have a relationship with Sean. That huh. she befriended Sean. Um, she did not know whether or not it was of a romantic nature, but that Sean was staying at her mother's house for some time, and that she, there was a, there was a some sort of a relationship going on. She and where was this? That was in Lynn Lake.
1: All right, Lynn Lake. And, and, I do
2: believe okay. that this was the woman that Sean uh, had, like, had her, that in Sean's mind was in a relationship with okay. that went sour that made him move on.
1: This is the woman that went to the hospital as well?
2: I don't think it was the same woman from the oh. hospital because uh, the same woman from the hospital was just a friend, not a mm. romantic interest.
1: Okay. All right, so you figured out who that that picture uh was but it was not of somebody in Thompson.
2: No, it was in uh in Mid Lake, yeah.
3: Okay.
1: Something else uh regarding Sean's disappearance is the alleged sighting of him in uh Saskatchewan, which is a nearby province in Canada. Uh why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about that?
2: Well I I got myself um thinking about, you know, what every aspect of this disappearance could be. And I actually, I thought that possibly maybe my brother could be choosing to hide and that maybe in his mind, he still thought that people were after him and that he had put himself in a very remote spot and that he was hiding. So I put out uh, a reward that was sounded more like a desperate plea and a cry for help. And, um, I wanted to let my brother know that if he was still out there, that I was hurting, and that I really needed him to contact me. So I had a reward just for fifteen hundred dollars because I like i the attended audience for that reward was Sean himself, just to mm-hmm. you know hear that I'm desperately reaching out to him,
1: yes and uh there was the this the sighting in Saskatchewan. What happened there?
2: That was a result of my reward. um A gentleman who was a taxi driver thought that he picked up Sean from a bar and drove him to a seven eleven to get munchies and then dropped him off at a home that he called like a trapper's house that people from out of town would stay at this house. So he thought that Sean matched that that this gentleman matched Sean's description. So he uh, he called the police and um and it turned out they went to the cameras at the Seven Eleven store and it turned out that this was a gentleman who was very known to the community and it was not Sean.
1: It Was not Sean? No. No. Okay. So uh, and in fact, outside of that morning, November twenty eighth, there have been no sightings of Sean
2: none oh. at all but almost one sighting for every single day that he was in Thompson and Lynn Lake from July until November I had been contacted by several of his peers several of his coworkers several of his employers um a lot of people who had crossed paths with him a woman um who seen him at the train station um gave him money for a uh, a train ticket, gave him some cigarettes. A lot, a lot of people reached out to me to say that Mm -hmm. they seen him here or there. And um, he was, he was definitely not in a situation where he was trying to hide from anybody. He was trying hard to network himself and to be very well-known.
1: But then after November 28th, nobody said they saw him.
2: Nothing. Nobody.
1: Stopped abruptly one day here, next day gone. Okay.
2: nothing since six forty five in the morning
1: now, besides the guy his name was Oliver who was playing in this card game, you managed to track down the two women who were playing cards with Sean on the night of november twenty seventh two thousand fifteen as well uh I how did you How did you do that, and what did they tell you
2: i just I kept calling the homeless shelter and I kept um Introducing myself, I kept talking about my brother. Um, I kept talking to them about what I wanted to know, about what I had heard, about the fact that I did not think that my brother was willingly um, keeping himself from the family. I was letting them know that I thought that my brother was in danger, and they were in agreement with me that they definitely put out the missing persons report on my brother because they were fearful for my brother's life. I I did get to speak to the person who put the missing persons report out himself. And, uh, I asked him very candidly. I said to him, like, you're an outreach worker, you're used to seeing people come and go and, you know, you'll see somebody and then you'll never see them again. I asked him what it was about my brother that, you know, made him remember him and what made him want to report my brother missing. And it was a combination of the the people driving around in Sean's truck, the fact that his wallet was still at the shelter, and the fact that Sean had an overall feeling of people being after him.
3: Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: And what about these two women? that you track down.
2: They they tracked me down.
3: Oh, okay. Um
2: they wanted, they knew about the reward. They knew about Sean's sister that was looking for him. And um at this point it was um Thanksgiving of 2016. So, um I was coming very close to about the one year missing um, persons of my brother and I was extremely fearful of my brother's case going into a coal pile so I reached out to Thompson Manitoba and I, I found two girls that were willing to give out Tim Horton's uh, donuts and coffee to the homeless people on Thanksgiving weekend for the Saturday and for the Sunday um, and just receive information that they could for me Hmm. and on the first day um one of one of the volunteers said that a woman by the name of Pam came by and uh she was speaking that she knew she knew Sean um she knew that he went missing she was very teary-eyed and she told the volunteers that she was very upset for Sean's family and that she knew that Sean had passed and she did not want to go missing too.
1: I see. Yeah. And, and she was identifying herself as one of the two women that played cards that night or that she was just a person who had information?
2: Um, she didn't identify herself at all, but the volunteer there did seek out who her, who she was and what it, uh, found out the person's identity with Pam. Yeah. Um, so Pam visited the table on the Saturday and then the with Donna. Um, and they were both, Pam only spoke on the Saturday. The next day, Donna came back on her own and spoke again and said, uh, you know, she knows Sean went missing. She knows where he's buried, but she doesn't want to go missing too and that she's very sorry for the family. So um hmm. after those two names were identified, I called the homeless shelter back and I spoke to the man uh I spoke to uh, a different gentleman who was working on the day of the 27th and he says to, and he said to me, "Yes, Pam and Donna do know Sean because they were sitting there and playing euchre with him and with Oliver on November 27th until early morning, um, and they were consuming drinks together, and Sean had left the group early to go to sleep in his truck. He had had too much, and then the other three continued to drink and you know, entertain themselves while Sean had okay. retired for the night.
1: So what you're saying is Pam and Donna, they did not identify themselves as the two women who were playing cards that night, but somebody at the no. shelter... Identified those two as the ones who were playing cards.
3: Absolutely. Okay,
1: so that lends at least some credibility to their story. I, I don't. Once again, I don't know yeah. what to make of it. I mean, I, I hear a lot of different stories. Uh, people lying yeah. about what they know in cases, but uh, right. you do at least know for sure that these two women, along with Oliver, uh, well. were playing cards. Wish on November twenty seventh.
2: I do, yes, and I do know that that was never in the police report
3: mm-hmm. and
2: um i do I do know that that was a fact that that did happen, and um that Donna and Pam and Oliver all admit to drinking um and hanging out with Sean before his disappearance.
1: Okay. And what I should infer – we sh- I guess what we can infer from what they're saying is uh, they're afraid to say any more than that because they're afraid they'll go disappearing – they'll disappear like Sean did, as in some sort of revenge or just to keep their mouth shut.
2: Something like that, yeah.
1: Okay. Have you personally been able to talk to Pam or Donna over the last, let's say, two years?
2: Um, I did, actually. I hmm. spoke. Um, I spoke to Donna while a phone well um I was speaking to the person who was volunteering at the table and um she had texted me the information that Donna had said to her and I gave her my phone number and I said, If you see Donna again, I said, Call me collect. I said, I want to talk to her. So later on that day she did see Donna and she she did call me collect. And she she was just asking questions that I would like just repeating questions to Donna. And then I could hear Donna what Donna was saying herself.
1: Uh-huh. Uh, but Donna wasn't willing to go any further than what she said before. She said, um, I don't want to say anything um, because, you know, she's fearful, fearful for her life. Uh, do you take that to mean that she thinks that Oliver did something? to sean or how do you take that
2: yeah i honestly i do have a horrible feeling about that um it's just the names come up several times too much um it's just everything nothing sits well with me and i do think that there may have been another fight on the morning of december 28th that maybe sean didn't win maybe uh it was accidental. I'm not mm-hmm. too sure what happened, but, um, I do have a very, very awful feeling that he lost his life at shortly after six forty five on november
1: twenty eighth and Pam and Donna and Oliver they don't stay at the shelter anymore. They're back on a reservation or something like that. they are uh um- I mean, we in the United States call them Native Americans, but w- yep. what do Canadians call them? First Nation, right? First Nation people?
2: Uh, we call them Native, and they're on their reservation.
1: And that's um, that's Pam, where Pam and Donna Pam, are now?
2: Uh, Pam's actually deceased.
1: Oh. Oh, my.
2: I have no idea when that happened. Okay. But uh, Pam is deceased, and um, Donna and Oliver are still living together on their First Nation, and um, last summer, um, my parents drove down and visited Donna and Oliver at their house and spoke to them, and uh, this time they agreed that, you know, they knew Sean, that they drank with him a few times, and this time they told my parents that he had a white girlfriend, and he left with his girlfriend.
1: Any idea who that might be? Have you ever mentioned that to the shelter people about a uh, a white girlfriend for Sean? Anything like that?
2: When I originally called, right away, and I was asking all the details, like I was asking whether or not he was seeing somebody, whether or not there was a woman that he could possibly have ran off with, and everybody says that Sean was not seeing anybody. That um, there were like you know there were women interested in Sean, but He just, he wasn't looking for that. Mm -hmm. And there was certainly not any white women around for Sean to date. Um, Donna and um, Oliver told my parents that he left with a woman by the name of Amelia Hardy. And when I looked up that name, she's a somewhat famous author.
1: So just making names up? Yeah. Okay. So your parents actually sat down and looked across the table at maybe two people who know exactly what happened to Sean, maybe.
2: Yep, yep. But by the time that my parents talked to them, it was almost two years later, and uh, the stories had changed, and the details were very faded. Yeah.
1: Okay, so we have Pam, who's deceased. We have Donna and Oliver, who are a couple. There are a couple, like, in a relationship?
2: Yep. Well,
1: that's convenient. Okay. Yep. Uh, this is something that I, I want listeners to know that I personally brought this up in a prior conversation because just the way the conversation was going, and I, I asked this to Melinda, so I'm going to ask her again. Uh, do you believe that Sean's disappearance was racially motivated?
3: Um,
2: I do, a little bit.
1: Okay, how do you mean? Um,
2: I think it was racially motivated as well as the fact that um, he had a mental illness. So I think that he was a target in his community, um, being one of very few um, Caucasian men, one of several that had mental illnesses. But Sean uh, was one of the only ones that were not self-medicating like the rest of them were. And Sean came off to them as a little bit of a preacher.
1: I guess what I'm saying is, do you, do you think it was because uh, he was a, a white guy new to town driving a truck, and they saw somebody they could take advantage of?
2: I think so. Yeah.
1: Okay. What is, what would you say is the racial makeup of Thompson, Manitoba?
2: I I'm led to believe that the majority of them are uh, native. Mhm. and um, that it's not really um, who lives in Thompson. It's more so who visits Thompson, why they visit Thompson, and how long they stay there for in, re- mm-hmm. in reference to the mental hospitals that people come in and out for treatment for.
1: Did you ever, I mean, I know he was only there a week or, or maybe a little more than that uh, before he disappeared. Uh, did you ever chance to go over to that psychiatric hospital and ask them if they ever saw Sean?
2: I've called them. I called, um, mm-hmm. almost every hospital in Manitoba, um, almost every clinic in Manitoba and Sean has not received treatment mm-hmm. at any of them.
1: Never. Okay.
2: Never before he went, he disappeared. Never.
1: So he gets in town. He's driving the truck. Um, maybe some of the locals, you know, quickly find out that you yeah. know Sean doesn't have all of his mental faculties. Maybe a little bit of a big talker, hallucinating yeah. a little bit, and then they find also that he's very trusting. On top yeah. of that, and they see somebody that they can uh, take advantage of. And once again, it might have been a factor that he wasn't a local and and wasn't part of the the majority uh, race in that area, could be.
2: Sean um, Sean also felt bad for the smokers in the fact that it was very cold. So he um, left his vehicle unlocked for people to sit in and have a cigarette without having to be cold. So uh, that kind of behavior I don't think is, like, custom in that town. And I think that did put a very big target on his back.
1: To your knowledge, have the police talked to you extensively? I mean, to any extent, uh, of course, Pam is deceased now, but Donna and, and Oliver, have they interviewed them, interrogated them, anything like that
2: at all? They They have said that they've made attempts and that the stories are not consistent. And that uh, um the big pro- they're not reliable, they're not consistent, and they've never been given um, at a time of sobriety, so unfortunately, um, Pam, Donna, and Oliver are big consumers of alcohol and did choose to speak to the police when they were intoxicated,
1: going back to when your parents got to talk to Don and Oliver being that this guy who ended up with the truck said he got the truck from Oliver. Did the did Sean's truck come up in that conversation? Did Oliver just come right out and say, "Yeah, Sean gave me the truck"? Do you know? Yeah,
2: he did.
1: That's what he said. Yeah,
2: he did.
1: Yeah. So he said that Sean gave him the truck because Sean is going off with some white woman, leaving town or something like that. That's their story.
3: Yeah.
1: Okay. All right. Um, in the present, um. What is going on with the case right now, Melinda? Anything.
2: In the present, I don't believe that anything is going on with the case. Um, We're told that it's still open and active and that Sean is on the Crime Stoppers' homepage and that it is an open file that people can still give their information on, but it has not happened.
1: And how has this affected you as his... Younger sister, I mean, you know that Sean struggled with a lot of issues you yes. know uh in his life, especially the last uh fourteen years until he disappeared with his schizophrenia, the thyroid condition, not wanting to take his medicine, you know right. moving out to Manitoba, living in a homeless shelter. I mean, how has this affected you in the last two and a half years um it's
2: It's affected me a lot it's um it's impaired my life quite a bit. Um, It's consumed me. Um, I suffer from insomnia from the early days that he was missing and, uh, you know, I was almost putting in 24-7 attention to uh, trying to find him. I spent a substantial amount of money.
1: Trying to find him. Going back, yeah, just, you
2: know, and, have you
1: been out to Thompson? How many times have you been out to Thompson?
2: I have not been out to Thompson, oh, not but been I there. am. No, I, I, um, so I have a younger child, so it had to have been either my parents or myself. Okay.
1: Sure. And they did go out there, like you said, to yeah. see Oliver and Donna. And, and uh, um,
2: they, they wanted to see the people at the shelter, and um, my mother said that there was a woman there that definitely was uncomfortable with her presence, but never wanted to speak at all to my mother.
1: Have the shelter people ever intimated to you or to your parents about what they think might have happened to Sean?
2: They had to me when Sean first went missing the first time that I did finally get in touch with, with somebody that worked there that knew my brother. Um, I spoke to him. I, I probably had about a two-hour conversation with this gentleman, and he said that he put out the missing persons report on my brother because he did feel that my brother's life was in danger, and he did feel that my brother may have been victim of a crime.
1: Did the shelter people ever say anything specifically about Pam, Donna, and Oliver? Once again, if you can say.
2: No, they were never allowed to give out any information due to the privacy. All the information that I found out was mm-hmm. through my reach out to the community and to my reward. And when I did find all the names, they did um, confirm it for me.
3: Okay, but They did
2: not present to me any of the names. I guess
1: what I'm saying is that none of the shelter people ever said to you, Oh yeah, I know that Oliver guy'd come in and say sometimes. Yeah, he could be a hothead. Yeah, he he could get into some scuffles once in a while with people if things didn't go his way. They aren't even allowed to say something like that.
2: No, they never said that about Oliver. They said that Oliver always, um always uh cooperated with the police and always um, you know, gave them the information that they needed. However, they did say that Pam was a problem for them and um they had believed that pam was actually asked to not come back to the town thompson due to um numerous things that were going on
1: okay all right so uh overall i I guess you did get at least a little information about them but uh just from the shelter. once again just with the shelter people just dealing with these people knowing these people You know, coming in once in a while.
2: Yeah, they were not homeless. They only used the shelter in ways that put other people at risk.
1: So uh, how did they use the shelter then?
2: Just basically as a place to stay off of their reservation to party. Mm -hmm.
1: So they weren't necessarily homeless?
2: They were not homeless, no.
1: Okay. And what about your parents? I mean, how have they uh struggled with this in the last two and a half years? Uh,
2: my father suffered a stroke, um, more than likely due to the stress of it. And uh my, we're all affected in different ways. Of course my mother is definitely affected by it. Um my they were very close with my brother. I had to take some time off from work. I was not – I did not do well with it.
1: Few people do, Melinda. Few people do. Um, Everybody is affected by it, and everybody um, suffers from it in their own way. Yeah. You know, and I know in all the people that I've interviewed, um, you know, parents can be affected by it. And, of course, they're all – it's one of the, one of the worst things that can happen to a parent, um, but even that they handle it in different that's ways, and it's the same way with siblings. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I've had uh, some siblings that are very involved in trying to find their missing brother or sister, and then uh, they tell me about some of their other brothers and sisters who aren't involved at all. You know, right. it's just it, uh it's a wide range of what people do. Uh, when somebody goes missing, a loved one goes missing, and how it affects them emotionally. that's a wide range uh, wide range
2: there was a lot of people that um, were very angry with Sean for this, like not not angry with him, like you know personally, but just with the idea of him going um to a town that he didn't do the research on, he didn't know where he was he didn't um you know he didn't check his surroundings you know there are some people that that are a little bit angry with just the way that things happen but i mean
3: yeah
2: anger is just another one of the emotions that you have to go through when you are missing somebody that you truly loved
1: right and i mean you can't blame him too much for that i mean you can blame him for not taking his medication you know that that was to not some good dissent,
2: that you know
1: you know, yeah. that that was something that made it very hard on you, very hard on your parents and probably other people as well. Uh, yeah. But anything after that is just a, a factor of his illness.
2: And even him going off of his medication, it's just, uh, it's another factor of the illness. And um, the majority of people do relapse several times when they have right. schizophrenia.
1: Yes, yes. Uh, Do you have a Facebook page or anything else where people can go to find more about uh, what you've been doing? Uh, I know that you are, uh, if you aren't in, you're going to be in there very shortly, the uh, Unfound Podcast discussion group. Do you have a Facebook page for Sean? Anything else?
2: I do. I have a Facebook page for Sean set up. Um, It's just called Find Sean, and then in brackets, it's Ivan, Y-V-O-N. That's his given name. Yes. Um, we put his name. At first, we did have the discussion group listed as Find Ivan, because we had heard that in some parts of the town he was going by Ivan.
1: Hmm. So yeah. it's so it's Find Sean. It's Facebook page. I'm going to be sending people to that to make sure they know all about Sean disappeared from Thompson, yep. uh, Manitoba, November twenty eighth. Two thousand fifteen, about two and a half years ago. Uh yeah. anything else before we conclude this interview, Melinda?
2: Um, I guess I hope that everybody can still share uh all the information about Sean, uh, talk about it, uh raise awareness to the fact that, you know, just because the case isn't right up in the uh, up in the face of the public you know the families are still seeking answers they're still struggling
3: yeah okay Uh,
1: I know I have uh, after the United States Canada is the place that uh, the second most uh, popular place I guess you'd say that where unfound is downloaded and listened to I have that from my statistics and I have a lot of listeners in Canada so I'm hoping uh, that at least a few of them uh, can help you out. And of course, this is the first case that Unfound is covered from your beautiful country, uh, Canada. I've been there many times. Um, in fact, I talked about going past St. Catharines many times, uh, going up to Toronto and up to Rice Lake over the course of my life. So I'm yeah, familiar with that area where you, uh, I guess, live and where Sean grew up.
0: Yep. Yeah,
1: it's a beautiful area. Yep. Um Melinda, I deeply appreciate you being on this episode of Unfound.
2: Thank you very much.
0: You're welcome. And that was my interview with Melinda Ginyard, sister of Sean Ginyard. I thank her for joining me and all of you on this episode. This past week in the Unfound podcast discussion group on Facebook, I linked to a recent article detailing how bad crime is in Thompson. I can assure you this was not some kind of hyperbole on my part just to sensationalize and market this episode. Thompson is a bad place, for all sorts of reasons, from its inhabitants to the police themselves. And yes, it's surprising, given Canada's overall great and peaceful reputation. The question for us, though, is, did Thompson's culture cause Sean to disappear? I have to say, I'm just not sure. There are way too many variables, including Sean's own mental state. Given what his sister said, yes, it is possible he gave his truck to that guy to use. In fact, Sean was allowing other people to sleep in it. In addition, Sean was hallucinating the days before, and that could be deeply exacerbated by the terrible cold conditions in Thompson in November if Sean was spending a lot of time outside. Hypothermia is also a possibility if Sean wandered off. If any of that was different, then I would feel a lot firmer about those people Sean played cards with, or someone else in that circle. Hey, it could be Sean gave away the truck for some money to pay the card players off. In that case, everything would be square with them, and no need for any animosity. As for what the women said about Sean not coming back, who knows, this once again is a case where people seem to know something, but they never say quite enough to help. And as you know, I'm dubious of all people who exhibit those qualities. If Melinda and her parents could figure out where Sean's call came from that morning, we would know a lot more. But she says they've looked into that. I hold out hope something new will appear on that front. Until then, I will work with Melinda as she sees fit. With that, I'll leave the rest of the theorizing up to you. And that's the program. If you found it informative, please go to the app that you use to listen to Unfound and give this podcast a five-star review. I thank you for listening. I'm Ed Densel, and you've been listening to Unfound.